Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Dr. Karen Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. In episode 47, I talked with writer and mindset coach Lise Wilcox. The episode was titled Authenticity Matters. Lee shared her own journey to discover her true self, even though it meant going through a divorce and dealing with pain, shame, and vulnerability to a level that she'd never before experienced. Lee also shared her breast cancer diagnosis and how she's been going through chemotherapy and finding ways to make even chemotherapy as beautiful as it possibly can be. Lisa's story is so inspiring, so I invite you to take a listen to episode 47 if you haven't, and then check back here for episode 50 as I pick up my conversation with Lise Wilcox. Here, Lise describes how she was asleep in her own life, and I ask her some of the messages that she was telling herself that allowed her to remain in a slumber, even though she had a beautifully picture-perfect life on the outside Inside, she didn't feel that. Join us now. Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. I'd love to connect with you on social media. On Instagram, I'm at Dr. Karen, D-R dot K-A-R-I-N. Here I share my thoughts on love and life through original quotes and images. I'd love to have you join the conversation. On Twitter, I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson. You can find me live tweeting my favorite shows. This is us, Will and Grace, and my guilty pleasure. All shows Bachelor Nation. On Facebook, I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. There you can read my blog, see where I'm speaking, and find links to others' podcasts when I'm a guest on their show. When you talk about being in a slumber, mm-hmm. one of the things I want to encourage folks who listen and follow is that authenticity is not a selfish endeavor. Mm-hmm. Our efforts toward authenticity benefit everyone around us in ways that are profound. Because sometimes, again, women, we can be socialized to think that we need to give, 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 and not spend much time on self-care or worry about ourselves. But the more that I know who I am and the more solid my identity is, the better everyone around me is. Yeah, and it's a gift to everyone. Mm -hmm. They know who they're dealing with. They know what they're getting. They know that I'm not looking to them to fill me up or meet my needs. And so it's just a very powerful, but sometimes I I just think it needs to be discussed more. Mm -hmm. And especially when you come from a place, and I I can resonate also, of feeling that you had been in this slumber, what sorts of things finally helped you wake up? Um, So there was, I can tell you the defining moment, actually, we had lived in the city of Toronto for a long time. And after we started our family, we, we were both, I would say we are both dreamers and we've got it in our head that we didn't want to live in the city anymore. We wanted to pack up and move to the country and just return to small town living. So we skipped out of Toronto kind of like throwing hundred dollar bills around and we're like, look how much we can get for our money. And we bought a seven bedroom century home on a half acre of property, about six blocks from one of the great lakes. Okay. 
we had it all. We had beautiful children. We had this amazing, like $30,000 kitchen with, oh my God, I think 60 linear feet of white Carrera marble and brand new appliances. Like it was so beautiful, exposed brick, like fireplace. Mm. And I was lying on the, on the carpet with my little girls one morning, just kind of looking up at the kitchen. They were toddlers. They were just like lying, kind of cuddling. And, uh, I looked up and I was like, Oh my God, if this isn't enough for me, what the hell is wrong with me? And that was the kickstarting moment that it was like, Oh crap. I am not enough for me. I, I wasn't even ready to think those words, let alone hear those words. And that took probably four years to come to terms with what that actually meant. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, the stuff around you doesn't matter. You know, my ex was the kind of guy who woke up and made a latte for me every morning. We are, we were talking like, this is a pretty good life we created for ourselves. Right. And I had this overwhelming feeling that I was always going to be searching for more and looking to just fill this void. And for me, it was the recognition that like, ah, crap, where does that void come from? And what does it actually mean? And so that for me began the process of like scratching my own surface and digging deeper on what, what I would need to do to take action, to make myself feel whole on my own. And you began the process of that authenticity and the search for authenticity mm-hmm. and kind of unwrapping the present that is you. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and I'm curious because as you know, also from my posts, mm-hmm. I'm very much into the messages that we tell ourselves. So yes. that's the cognitive therapy piece of me. I love it. What sort of messages do you identify or remember some of the messages that you told yourself that allowed yourself to stay asleep? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, yes. Uh, a lot of the messaging then was, no, no, this is just what marriage is like, you know, right. things just, no, this is the way that it is. No, this is what it's like with young kids. No, it's not supposed to be any other way. No, I think you've been sold a fairy tale. So I really supported my own confirmation bias. It was like, nah, <laughs> nah, nah, it's okay. This is just what it's supposed to be like. And I would find examples of other people who, you know, were also like, no, it's fine. That kind of, that kind of messaging. And the reason I ask, obviously, is again, it's something that I identified in hindsight. Mm -hmm. All the messages, and and I love that you use confirmation bias. (laughs) (laughs) The psych nerd in me is loving that. Psych nerd. (laughs) One more area where we resonate. (laughs) Yeah. And so, and that's so powerful. And and we don't realize it because it's Mm -hmm. our bias and we think it's true. (laughs) And so, and until we take a step outside of ourselves, so to speak, and mm-hmm. look at those messages that we keep tossing around in our minds mm-hmm. as if they are absolutely gospel truth. Yes. And then we look at them and go, hmm, yeah, maybe it doesn't have to be that way. I've That's believed right. it to be this way. And look at the choices I've made because I've believed mm-hmm. it to be this way. Your life is following your thoughts. Yes. So those confirmation biases, those those biases that you hold, you are confirming them and you will work very hard to confirm them because if you don't, you'll think you're crazy. Mm -hmm. 
you have to find evidence in your environment that confirms what you believe. And that's what you were doing. Yeah. It it makes me laugh because it's kind of a beautiful design, right? Like the brain is so fascinating to me because it's designed to keep us protected. And, you know, when you have the audacity to challenge your own patterns, it does not feel good. (laughs) It really (laughs) feels terrible because it's threatening every safety system you have in place neurologically. It, like, yeah. it takes massive, massive work to undo that programming and create new pathways. And like, how beautiful is that, that you can change it at any given time, but you actually, the only person you really have to challenge is yourself. Right. And you have all the power, mm-hmm. but you don't realize it, but you do. And like I said, that's one of my main concerns when I'm interacting with folks is, wait, what are you telling yourself? Yeah. What? Because that's where the power is. You keep thinking, you know, in my space, I've got a lot of, you know, these guys, they're all this and that and the other. I'm thinking, yeah, you keep thinking all those guys are are, are jerks. And guess what? All the jerks are going to show up around you because the nice guys, you won't even notice. And if you notice them, you'll dismiss them and you won't even remember they were there because it absolutely goes against your bias. That's right. And people don't want to hear that though, because there's a, there's a safety and security in just, just saying it's them pointing the finger. And just delegating out responsibility, right? Right, right. I mean, taking charge of your own life is a heavy duty responsibility. Mm -hmm. And one, like you said, that takes some gumption Mm -hmm. because if we've been, if if we've been used to going, oh, it's that person's fault or it's this person's fault or it's society's fault or it's the weather's fault. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) That's, that feels good because I don't have to own any of it. Oh, hundred percent. And I'm always thinking, but there's no power there. How can that feel good? Well, and that really, I'm pretty early into my experience with cancer and the healing process that has followed it, um, which is a great thing because we've been dealing with it so head on and so rapidly that it makes it so manageable. Um, but that really messed me up about having the initial cancer diagnosis because I believe wholeheartedly that I am at cause for my life and that it's the decisions that I make that allow or disallow things to show up. So when cancer showed up, suddenly I went to, (laughs) this is not healthy either, but I went to a place of like, well, what did I do wrong (laughs) to like cause this in my life? Right. And, uh, and then I was able to detach from that a little more and a little more healthily and be like, okay, so I don't think I'm at cause for this, but what kinds of behaviors have I enabled? What kinds of emotions have I let lay dormant um, for too long? Like, how have I played a role in this? And then furthermore, now that this is happening, like this is created and it is here, then how do I make it my own and make it more palatable for me and more how do I make it more beautiful for my own life just to acknowledge and accept that it's here and make it my own experience? Which really struck me when I saw one of your posts and I commented on it. Mm-hmm. It was so powerful, Lise. Mm, thank you. There you were with your cute little notebook and your cute <laughs> little, I don't know if it was a water or a coffee mug. <laughs> and you're like, I am going to make this chemotherapy session. <laughs> it is going to be beautiful. Yes. <laughs> 
I was. I mean, so just know that your American friend was down there looking at her phone, going, "This woman is remarkable." And what was the quote? I've asked you before. I will make. I will create for myself a beautiful life. Mm, it's is an Elsie DeWolf quote, and it's, "I am. I will make my life beautiful." Semicolon. Oh. That will be my life. Ah, oh. and it's true. And you know what? I got to tell you, I've only. I'm only two sessions into chemo, but so far so good. And, you know, my amazing nurses, like they even know which chair I like and they reserve it for me. <laughs> so it's like, I call ahead of the four seasons and, you know, have them book my chair already for me. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's, that was just a mindset technique that like, if this is happening, okay, it's happening right. and I can't control that, but I can really get control over what it feels like as it's happening. And beauty is a huge part of it. And um, again, drawing that parallel between the trauma of divorce and the trauma of cancer and chemotherapy is like, I didn't know how to make divorce beautiful in a public way, Mm. right? I could make divorce beautiful in my own life and I could suddenly channel, you know, when it was only my house with my little girl's I could decorate it however I wanted and we could, you know, my entire house as a result is pink and gold. Like there's, <laughs> we are strongly considering getting a male dog just to kind of balance out the energy here. <laughs> um, but otherwise, like it's, it's very feminine. And I, and I knew how to make it very beautiful on a private level, but publicly, I don't know how you make divorce beautiful because of just how painful it is, but something like cancer is totally different. And it was, it has felt like I've had more permission to take something traumatic and scary and make it like the best of a bad situation, you know, and just make it something that works for me as opposed to constantly feeling like it's working against me. I'm just so struck by that. I, I'm curious if you've had, as you've been very public about your journey through this, have you had any resistance? Do you do some, uh, maybe other cancer, uh, patients or survivors, do they look at your stance and go, no, this was not fair. It was not right. This is totally horrible. Yeah. And why aren't you just mad and shaking your fist at the sky? I don't know. I am. That's a really good question. I've tried to be very, or I am very conscious of being respectful that this is my experience and that this is Mm -hmm. nobody else's experience but mine. And cancer is this wacko disease that is, you know, it's, this is kind of an ironic thing to say, but like cancer really is like snowflakes. Like there are no two that are the same. They affect each body mm. differently. And the treatment is different for every person, depending how old you are and how healthy you are and what your family history is like, like cancer is such a sweeping umbrella. I had no idea. So knowing that I know that my experience with it has been more positive than a whole lot of other options. So I've been very mindful of staying respectful again, that this is my experience and not anybody else's. Um, also for my own mental and emotional health, I tune a lot out. Mm-hmm. So I don't seek it out. I don't look for, you know, this might sound arrogant, but I don't even look to see what other people's experiences are. Cause I know for me to stay healthy, focused and positive, I really just have to stay in my own lane and keep my head down on what works for me. I think that's so wise. I really do. And, oh, I do. And it's, it's that juxtaposition of, okay, no, I'm not an ostrich with my yeah. head buried in the sand. Yeah. At the same time, I cannot open myself up, that's belly right. up to all kinds of other impressions, right. other responses, and, and many of which may be negative, And I don't need that right exactly. now. 
And I think that's, again, taking charge, Mm -hmm. taking charge of your experience in this life, (laughs) taking charge of your life. Well, and what's been really interesting for me is that at the very beginning, when I found out, I can't, I don't know where this came from. I have, and I've tried to examine it and I don't have the answer yet. But as soon as I found out I had breast cancer, I felt so much shame and like, where did shame come from with cancer? And at first I was like, I am not telling anyone. I will just not take any selfies for the next eight to 12 months on Instagram. And like, I will just mm-hmm. bury the entire thing. And I was so resistant to sharing it. And, um, one of the, uh, you know, we talked about waking up from a lifetime slumber. One of the the markers now that tells me I'm waking up from something is if I feel like I'm going to be sick about something, mm. it's always something I have to do. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I started to feel completely like I was going to throw up in sharing it. And I was like, Oh no, I know what this means. <laughs> I've done this before. <laughs> and it was like, Oh girly, now you gotta tell everybody. <laughs> right, so, right. But it was amazing. The shift once I decided, and I'm not kidding, like when I posted that first post, I was like, I rewrote it probably 30 times and was trembling when I pressed send and um couldn't check my phone for a little for a little while during the day to see what the response had been. But that cleared it and that brought such power and empowerment back into my life because I was like, no, this isn't shameful. This is I'm not coming at this from a place of weakness. I'm coming at this from a place of immense strength. And although this is my experience, oh my God, this experience is not unique to me. Like this is a, um, a dis-ease that affects ay, 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 like countless women. And oh. I felt, I don't know, I felt just such a an, an ownership in taking a pretty raw experience and not making it doomsday, but just making it really real, really real and really accessible. Hey, Black Coffee Drinkers, Love & Life's newest sponsor, Drink Now, is about to change your world. I'm a black coffee drinker, and so I know what you've been going through. You're burning your tongue, you're scalding your mouth, you're having to wait 40 minutes before you can even take a sip of your black coffee. By the time your coffee is cooled down enough that you could drink it, your muffin or your donut is already long gone. I know. I can't wait to eat that donut either. But now there's a solution. The Drink Now Perfector takes scalding hot coffee down to a drinkable 140 degrees in just 20 seconds without watering your coffee down. Learn more about Drink Now at drinknow.com and on Instagram at underscore drink underscore now underscore. You mentioned earlier that you had that thought of because you take such a strong stance of of owning your life and your decisions Mm -hmm. that you even... Then with breast cancer, there was a, a moment of thinking, <laughs> how have I played a role in this? Mm-hmm. Do you think the shame was linked to that? Because again, I think some people would say I had no role in this whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And then other people, which I completely, I see the world very similarly to you. The, yeah. I mean, I knew that before, but definitely yeah. after this conversation, yeah. I see that <laughs> because I am the same way. I just, if anything happens, I want, it's Okay. It's my yeah. fault. And, and some people hate that because, oh, don't put blame on yourself. Yeah. But to me, blame, if I blame myself, I can do something about it. Yes. If I blame anyone else, I can't do anything about That's that. Right. So I'm, I don't see blame as being this, this pejorative kind of self-deprecating notion mm-hmm. per se. To me, it's power. But mm-hmm. so getting back to my question, do you think that 
the shame was linked to that piece of you going, what did I do? What was my part in this? I, I wonder, I don't know. And, you know, I spent again, a good 30 years was just worrying about stuff. And I am positive I had undiagnosed generalized anxiety for most of my life, right? Just and again, that that came from a, a lot of decisions that I made in terms of how I handled and reacted to other people, which I do take responsibility for. But I, I think for me, like knowing just a little bit about what I know, I was like, cancer is anger, and cancer is stress, and wow, cancer appeared in my breast over my heart of all places, and it's like. Okay. So that's not a coincidence. So, you know, how did I play a role in letting anger, honestly, literal anger take over my heart and manifest there as something physical. And, you know, for me, that was confirmed when, um, we did a lumpectomy pretty early on and blissfully and blessedly were able to remove the tumors that had grown. And when I woke up from surgery, there was a, prof- you know how groggy you are when you wake up from surgery? You're so, mm-hmm. I think I was on fentanyl. Like I was so drugged. <laughs> and um, yeah. my first thought when I opened my eyes was this big breath of air. And I was like, oh my God, it's gone. We physically cut that anger out of my body. Wow. So that's pretty powerful. Um, so yes, I do think that for I'm 37, I think now, I think for about 34 years, I didn't have any boundaries. You know, I never stood up for myself and I never acted in a way that was really right for me. I acted in a way that I thought would be right for other people to make it easier for me. I really genuinely put other people's needs ahead of mine, mostly out of an emotional safety place, um, just to minimize the risk to me. And I, I really think that I internalized all of that anger and all of that stress and then it manifested and created itself like directly over my heart, which I think is just so indicative. It's yeah, that's, um, it's uncanny, (laughs) at least uncanny. This quarter, Love and Life lends a hand to 11th Candle Company. All proceeds from the sale of my book, Single is the New Black, Don't Wear White Till It's Right, will go to 11th Candle Company's Legacy Foundation. To hear more about the incredible work Amber Runyon is doing to help women escape sex trafficking, please take a listen to my podcast interview with her. It's episode 42, How Does a Candle Company Combat Human Trafficking? 11th Candle Company. Check them out at 11thcandleco.com and be sure to use promo code TAKECHARGE to receive 20% off your entire purchase. When you say that you were meeting everyone else's needs as a, I think you said, as a safe place for you. Yeah. Can you explain that? Because I think sometimes that's a little bit hard to to sort through. I grew up in the presence of a narcissist. And um, I think one of the things that comes with that environment is just this feeling that you're walking on eggshells all the time. And as I, as I felt like I was walking on eggshells, all I wanted to do was just minimize all damage. I wanted to minimize all conflict, all confrontation. And so I just crept. And it really is like, when I say these words, I can feel it. I feel like I was creeping around 
just trying to live very quietly and subtly and out of sight and not making a big deal out of anything, tried to be as easygoing as I could, but also, you know, as in control of things as much as I could, um, just to minimize my own heartache. And so the pattern that I, I guess that I learned or that I taught myself is just like, just do whatever it takes to deflect Mm -hmm. attention away from you. And in doing so, I made terrible decisions, (laughs) like really terrible decisions because I thought they were decisions um, that would keep the peace. Uh, And in hindsight, yes, they kept the peace, but they ultimately weren't the right decision for me. Now, again, like I'm, I'm so meta and I got to say, of course, then they were the right decisions because all the decisions have led me here. So there's like, actually, no, there were no mistakes made, but I I used to make decisions from that place of how do I minimize the emotional risk for me? And how do I keep my emotional safety at the forefront? And it strikes me that in the midst of that, and you were basically doing many dances, dancing around this relationship, dancing around this circumstance, trying to keep the peace, trying to make sure that everyone's okay, the eggshells aren't breaking. And yet you also recognize that you, in the midst of that, all that work to stay, keep the peace, and you went, you, you still had generalized anxiety. Yes, <laughs> so yes. it, I know, I know. <laughs> all those efforts weren't working. Yes. So, but we think we're, they're working because again, we we're, we're operating with these scripts and these mm-hmm. notions and we're not understanding that all this energy we're exerting mm-hmm. isn't working because we're still completely tied up in knots inside. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that as you've stepped toward authenticity and taken on these, these, these challenges and, and walked through these valleys, do you feel that that anxiety has lessened? Oh, absolutely. That was, I feel like that was one of the most, um, I guess, profound changes is that I used to feel anxious a lot and I just don't anymore. You know, there are Mm -hmm. moments where I feel anxious and even, um, as an example, I went to, I, I was going for treatment last week and I went to pick up all my, um, anti-nausea meds at the pharmacy and they hadn't filled the order properly. So I was looking through the bag and I was like, "Uh Oh, I'm missing one. And they were like, Oh, that's no problem. We'll just get it for you tomorrow. And I was like, no, it can't be tomorrow. I do treatment tomorrow. And so my anxiety, wow. Like just came back. Like I hadn't felt it in years and knowing that and feeling that feeling. Now I have the tools where I could talk myself down and be like, you know what? Mm -hmm this has a solution. So don't go to the worst case scenario. This has a solution. And the solution is just going to present itself, which it did in which it always does. Uh, but yeah, the, the absence of anxiety in my life and just operating from a place of, Oh, we'll figure it out. I don't need to worry about it because either I will figure it out or it will figure itself out naturally. And I'll be prepared for whichever has been, it has been a huge difference. And just taking charge again of your self-talk. Yeah, absolutely. Just, okay. I'm feeling this. I'm feeling, okay. All right. Take a breath. Yeah. Just take a breath. And what do I need to, it's like, like, what would you tell your girls, right? If they were freaking out of it. (laughs) You got to tell yourself that like you mentioned earlier, the inner child needs some conversation for yourself. It's a huge litmus test for me because whatever I tell the girls, I have to be comfortable telling myself. And whatever (laughs) I'm comfortable telling myself is what I'm comfortable telling my girls too, right? So it just feeds itself. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. So Lise, just to wrap up, I, I want, if you don't mind, to share a little bit. We talked about, as we were preparing for this conversation, we talked about pain, shame, and, and the connection. And, and you mentioned that you have found, again, through your journey, that 
pain is pain and it is real and it is there, but it can be lessened or at least processed more effectively, more helpfully if the shame gets removed. Can you talk about how you've done that? You've spoken to that a little bit throughout the conversation, but you talk a little bit about that connection and then disentangling pain and shame. You bet. Um, Last year in May, I went to California for a conference, um, almost exclusively so I could hear Brene Brown speak. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that she said that really got me was shame thrives in secrecy. Mm -hmm. And that to me is just, that just says everything you need to know about shame, you know, in 10 words or less. Um, For me, when you have those feelings, the feelings are real. It's not even necessarily the event that is real because it's usually mm. just the memory of an event. But when that feeling is present, it feels like it's real. And when you keep it to yourself, I think you just keep piling and piling and piling and just, you know, I'm trying to think of a good metaphor. It just feels like you're, you're covering it in blankets and, and nothing is happening. It's just getting worse and worse as it tries to get out. And, um, for me, when I, I guess when I gave myself permission to be so vulnerably honest and say, this is what's happening. This is what I'm afraid of. This is what it feels like. It's like turning on the light, right? You know, you think that something's living under your bed and you get all worked up about it. And you have to jump from the doorway into bed to avoid the little monster that's living on there. And actually all you have to do is turn on the light and realize it isn't as scary as you think that it is. And that was a big deal for me for shame. It's just turning on my own light to reveal the own crap hiding in my own darkness and, and let it breathe so that it could go away. And I, as one of your followers, will thank you here. And again, I'm sure many times in comments for your willingness to turn on that light. And I'm quite sure that those who've been through divorce and those who are going through cancer are very grateful that you've turned on that light because I, again, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, your platform and your presence is a light. It absolutely is. Thank and you. so thank you for sharing your light with my listeners today. And it, it was just an absolute treat to talk to you. And just thanks so much, Lise. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for all of the work that you do because I don't know if you know what a difference you're making in so many people's <laughs> lives just of... Gosh, at the very least, just reassurance that waiting is worth it and that there's no pressure. There's no timeline. It's just unfolding as it needs to unfold. So thank you. Oh, thank you for that. I appreciate it. (laughs) The love and life hack for this week is wake up. Are you asleep in your own life or asleep in a certain area of your life? If so, It's time to wake up and live authentically. And only you can wake yourself up. No one else can do it for you. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Thanks for listening, for subscribing, for liking episodes and leaving reviews. It means so much to me. Till next time, make it a great week. Dr. Karen Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-April.